Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us in each of the each of this as we go forward. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 7, starting at verse 21. And I will give it into the hands of the strangers for prey, and to the wicked of the earth for a spoil, and they shall pollute it. My face will I turn also from them, and they shall pollute my secret place, for the robbers shall enter into it and defile it. So we're going to stop there because he's still continuing with this whole idea of judgment falling upon Israel, the world, you know, specifically Israel, and we've been saying it sounds very much like the end days. Uh, but it could also be Rome coming in at this point. But he says he will give it, that would be Israel and, and Jerusalem, into the hands of strangers for a prey and the wicked of the earth for a spoil. And they shall pollute it. Stuff meant for Israel, is it meant for this country too? My personal opinion is that nothing is geared toward the United States in the scriptures. Well, I don't mean that necessarily. I'm just talking about in general. In general, if we can take it, if we disobey God, there will be judgment, yes. But nothing in, in real specifics. We've got all kinds of people trying to find America in the Bible. And I've even heard people go, this verse is all about America. No, America, there's no verse specifically about America. Now, if you're talking about some verse that relates to Gentiles, you probably could say it has something to do with America because we're part of the Gentile world. And most of the time when people are trying to find that, they're trying to get into replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel and Israel, God has no more dealings with Israel. And then they'll say the church has everything to do with Israel, and they'll try to put the United States in that, in those places. You know, there's some verses you might be able to read a little bit about America in, you know, but not none that I can think of you know, without twisting things pretty far out of. It gets to be an interesting thought. America still is predominantly a Christian country, even though we're falling away. So it is very possible that when the rapture hits, America won't have enough be so shaken up with key, key positions missing that it will be not a, a force in, this, in the seven years of tribulation. Others, others have believed that maybe there'll be such a great, great revival in America that so many people will be taken that we won't. We won't. But I think, it's, I think it's pretty much that it, key positions will be lost and that will be enough to shake up the country and it'll take a while for it to, to get its bearings back together. But I don't see, and I've looked at many of the verses where people say, see, here's America, and I start looking at it, and I don't see America in it. If somebody is a Christian, they will not be here at the tribulation period because they will well, be raptured. Will people get come to God during the tribulation? Absolutely, because that's the whole purpose of the 144,000 Jewish missionaries. Will there be Gentiles that come to God during that period? I'm sure there will be. I mean, it's not just... Maybe some is on the... On the and there are some people who believe that that won't happen because there is a verse that says that God will send great delusion upon those. And, that, and there's those who interpret that saying that if somebody turned away from God before the rapture, that God would put a delusion on them because they made their choice before. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but there are many that teach that. The most important thing for us to keep in mind is the Bible has two primary focuses. The whole Bible is all about Jesus. And the second focus is always about Israel. So when we try to find China or Japan or America, 
it's very hard to find those countries because there was no references to them. We do have some references to Magog and Gog, which we know are directly north of Israel. So that would either be Iraq, Iran, or Russia. Look at the table of nations, which we're going to look at on Sunday in about three weeks, uh, where people were spread. Gog and Magog go straight north. It would be basically Russia and what's now becoming the Islamic nations. Now, there is the reference of the coming of the army from the Far East, which could be China. But again, that's a reference that's very directly. If you go east of Israel, you're basically the, the rest of the Islamic empire, India and, and China, are basically where you go to on the east. So we know there's certain things that, that are very clearly mentioned. America, did God know about America? Could he have put it in the Bible? Yes. Does, is it easy? Is there anything that very clearly says that? There's all kinds of people who twist, twist things and turn things, but it would be very obscure and it's very twisted to get, to get there. You know, so, and this is the first rule when you read the scriptures is you read it as what it says first, and then you can look for how you can apply the message to it. I understand them. They believe that America is you know, this really great country that has to have some influence in the end times, but that's not necessarily the case. And we may not want to be part of the end times because all the world is going against Israel in, in, the, in, the, in the last seven years. So no matter if we want to find America, it's not as the defender of Israel during the seven years of tribulation. It will be part of the armies that come against Israel. Verse 22, my face will I turn also from them, the ones that are going to pollute his, his temple, and they shall pollute my secret place, which is the Holy of Holies, and they shall, and robbers shall enter into it and defile it. This happened at the Babylonian captivity. They went in and defiled the temple and took everything out. When Rome conquered it, they went in and defiled the, the, the uh, temple. And uh, the, in Rome's case, they, 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 they spread pig's blood all over the inside of the temple and offered a pig upon God's altar and stripped out everything, destroyed, destroyed the whole building so they could get all of the gold off the, off the rocks and in, in between it. We know that in the end days that Satan will stand up in the middle of the temple at the middle of the, of the tribulation period and declare that he's God and demand worship. And that's when Israel realized that they've been lied to and tricked and they will flee from the city. And then things really get bad for the last three and a half as Satan goes after them and God protects them. So we know that this, has, this particular prophecy has happened three times in Israel. Babylon, Rome, and, and will happen. Okay, so it has happened twice and will happen one more time. So three times in all that it will happen. And God says, I'm just going to turn my face. When I send my judgment to you, I'm just going to turn away and let it happen. And this is where God, where we say, well, could God stop it? Absolutely, he could stop it and could have stopped it. But he was saying, this is the punishment for it. And Israel put much of their faith and their hope in, before the tabernacle was, uh, before the temple was built, they put it into the Ark of the Covenant. And if you read through the Old Testament, there were many times when they took the Ark of the Covenant into battle because they considered it bringing God's presence and bringing God's presence into the battle would guarantee them win, a win. And on 
A couple of occasions, the Ark of the Covenant went into the enemy's hands for a little while, especially uh, before Saul took, you know, became king. They took it into battle, and, and the Philistines took it, and then they sent it back because of all the plagues that God sent upon the Philistines. And I believe there was one other time when the Ark went into the enemy's hand for a short period of time, and they sent it back. Uh, but God, but the children of Israel have often put their hope not in God, but in things. And the, the brass serpent that was put up in, the, in uh, the book of Numbers when the serpents would come, came into the camp and bit the people and, and they were killing them and, and Moses was told, put up a brass serpent and anybody who just looks at it will be healed. Well, over years, that became an idol. People were worshiping it and it had to be destroyed in the days of, I believe it was Hezekiah who destroyed it. Uh, but one of, those king, one of the good kings destroyed it because it had become an idol. They were just, it became an idol. It, was, it was, should have been destroyed long before that. And then you look at Jerusalem and the temple. And people put their hope not in the God of the temple, but in the temple itself. And we see that being, being spoken of a lot. That, and, you know, that they, their hope was in the temple. In Jesus' day, they would swear not by God, but by the temple of God. So there was all these things where the Jews kept bringing up everything, were trying, you know, lifting up almost everything but God. And I don't want to judge the Jews too harshly because a lot of times Christians do the same thing. We get so busy in, in worshiping things and things because we're humans. We want to see something and it makes it easy to worship when we see and Jesus in, in, the, in, in the word we're told the just shall live by faith. And, but that's a hard way to live. To not see what you're worshiping is a, is a tough thing to do. And yet we will oftentimes lift things up. And it can be even good things that we lift up. Uh, many people lift up their good works. I got to do good works. I got to do good works because this shows how much I love God. And some people it is their attendance at their church. I always go to church. I'll never miss church. I never read misreading the Bible. Now, all of those are good things, but if we're putting our faith in those things and not God, we have a problem. And I know that there are many people oftentimes that do just that. They put their faith in the works. They put their, their faith in what, what it is rather than in God. And this is something that, and I'm not saying don't come to church or don't read the Bible. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to say that, but I'm saying are, what, why are we doing it? Are we looking to God or are we doing other things? And God brings judgment when it's the other things. And he's going to show you that the other things aren't what's important. He is what's important. Verse 23, Make a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. Wherefore, I will bring worst of the, the worst of the heathen, and they shall possess their houses, I will also make the pomp of their strong to cease, and their holy places shall be defiled. Destruction comes, and they shall seek peace, and there shall be none. Mischief shall come upon mischief, and rumor upon rumor. Then shall they seek a vision of the prophet, but the law shall perish from the priest and the council from the ancients. The king shall mourn, and the princes shall be clothed in, in, with desolation, and the hands of the people shall be troubled. I will do unto them after their way, and according to their deserts I will judge them.
for they shall know that I am the Lord. So he starts out with make a chain, and chains are used for binding, binding things. So, uh, so this is talking about you know, the, the fetters, the chains of bonding. And he says, make a chain for the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. At this point, God is re reaching back and telling them the land has become what it was back in the beginning. And when the children of Israel came into the promised land, they were told to destroy all the inhabitants and all the stuff that they had because their sins were so bad that God wanted to destroy all of it. They had sexual sins, violence, everything that was out there was just totally bad. And God said, take the land. And now he's saying it's become what it was. It's full of violence. It's full of blood or death. And God is saying, basically, you have rejected my gift. <laughs> How many times do we reject God's gifts? Too many times, actually, and I know that I have where we stop recognizing them as his gift. And we start thinking, well, I deserve it, or it's the way it always is. <laughs> and I've given this warning before. We need to be careful. When God blesses us, we need to be always ready to say, God, thank you for the blessings, not get to the place where we forget that they are blessings. Because if you forget their blessings, at some point God may just say, let me remind you that these are blessings and not the norm. And here he's saying the land is full of violence, full of cr bloody crimes, not just, not just simple crimes, but crimes of death. And I think about our world where we're at now. Many crimes involve violence now. And there used to be a time when much of the crime was not necessarily violent. It, they stole things, but they didn't usually kill people. Now, we're hearing about death every time we turn around. Well, home invasions, uh, armed robberies, and a lot of times anymore they're, they're, they're killing the people for whatever reason. You know, they're not even a reason sometimes when they're killing these people. So, you know, so we see our world is becoming just like what he's talking about that's bringing violence. And he says, Wherefore, I will bring the worst of the heathen, and they shall possess their houses. And God says, when I judge you, I'm going to bring the worst. God uses evil to bring judgment upon his people. And he uses evil sometimes to bring judgment upon Christians, if, that, if they're getting that bad. And he's used it to destroy nations. This is something we've got to be cognizant of. God uses the evil. When he sent Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to conquer Israel, Nebuchadnezzar was not a nice guy. <laughs> okay? He was brutal in his battles. He took captives, and when he marched them back, and he marched them from Israel on and other places, he would string their noses with a, with a hooped nose ring and uh, tie chains to them so that if you fell, you were you were drugged until your nose basically got ripped out and you were fettered, you know, beyond that. So he was not a nice guy. The, the, the Caesars were not nice people when they conquered, conquered these places. 
they would crucify people. Nero put people on and used them as torches in his gardens. He would cover them with oil and then burn them, burn them while they were yet alive, to the, at least to the beginning. The, the conquerors that God has used against his people have not been nice people. They've really been the worst of the worst. And he says, I sent them because of your sin. We need to be aware that God will judge us at times. And when things seem to be going bad, and if it goes really bad, and we're looking at something really bad happening to us, we might want to look at our life and say, okay, God, what is it that I have not been doing? Not every bad thing is that, but when we get to this point, where the worst of it, worst of the worst are coming after us, we need to look at our life and say, God, what's, what have I done? Otherwise, we're just like Job, and we might lose things. We might have trials and tribulations, and harsh trials and tribulations, which aren't our fault. It's just God trying to teach. And in Job's case, he was trying to teach him lessons as well. Because if you look at Job, Job really believed in the prosperity gospel. If you did right things, you would be rewarded. And God had to show him as well, Job, it's all my grace. It's all my grace that you have anything. Job is a great example of the prosperity gospel not being true. And, but Job is also that whole, everything about Job, when Job's friend said, Job, you did something wrong, Job's answers in poetic language are usually, yes, I know what you're saying is true, that, the, that only the wicked get punished like this, but I am innocent. Okay, he says, yes, I know what you're saying is true, but I don't deserve this. So he was, God was teaching him at the same time, no, Job, the prosperity gospel isn't, isn't necessarily right. You're, you're being blessed because I blessed you, not because you deserved it. Now, is it true that if we do, God's, do things God's way, we will generally be blessed? Yes. So in one sense, the prosperity gospel has a root in truth, but it's not true in its, in its final stages. If we're obeying God, he generally blesses us. And that could be through wealth and, and peace. But it's not a guarantee. He's never promised that it would be, that we would be wealthy just because we followed him. But he does say we will be blessed. And this is where we have to draw this line is, blessing, uh, wealth can be a blessing. I have also seen wealth be a curse on people. I've seen Christians who got wealthy who stopped coming to church and stopped serving God because they got so, so much stuff that they had to play with their stuff and they gave up God. So wealth, in their case, ended up being a curse. And so we want to be very careful. What can be a blessing for one person can be a, a curse for another person. And sometimes what's going to be a curse for somebody might not be even a problem to somebody else. And so we look at this and say, God, what is it that you want me to learn? And go forward from there. And then he says, Wherefore, I will bring the worst of the heathen, and they shall possess their houses or take their stuff, and I will make the pomp of the strong to cease, and their holy places shall be defiled. So all the decorations, all the trappings of the, of the strong and the wealthy and the good, he says they're going to cease. In other words, they're going to be taken away. And this, again, all of this has happened to the Israel in Babylon, in Rome, and will happen again in the end days. That even the wealthy will be taken into captivity. 
or have to run from the enemy. And this is what we saw in Babylon and, and Rome are both. The, the royal families were taken captive and they lost all their pomp and their, and their riches and the rich had lost all the stuff. And those who didn't get taken into captivity, if you had anything, ran for their lives, which meant if you run for your life, you're leaving everything behind. And this has happened many times and even through history has happened to people. You have lots of wealth and you're, and you're in the middle of a rebellion and you run for your life. You don't run for your life carrying, carrying a trailer behind you. You, know, you leave everything behind. You grab a couple, a couple of trinkets maybe and that's about what you're leaving with. This will happen again in the future. And when Israel is in the seven, seven years of tribulation and Antichrist stands up, they will flee. And that's what Jesus said, pray that, you don't, that this will not happen in the winter so that you can travel. Pray that, it, that you won't be a woman in travail or a woman with uh, an infant child, you know, nursing an infant, an infant child. Pray that these aren't what's going to happen because it's hard to run when those, are those, when those types of things are going on. And so we know that that's coming. But yeah, they've been a little bigger in the past. And they've been, at least at one time in history, had all of their land. And they will have all their land when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation period. And they will reign. And everything will be centered on Israel. So there will be a lot of peace. There won't, even, won't, won't be any demonic in, you know, interference trying to stir up trouble. There will be people who will try to, you know, because there's going to be sin nature. But there won't be demonic. And a lot of what goes on in our world... And I'm not saying that they're worshiping demons or anything, but most of the troubles that are going on in our world are demonic-inspired. Hitler, when he came to power, was not necessarily, I'm not saying he was possessed or antichrist, but he was very heavily influenced by demonic thoughts and projections, and he was easy target for them. And others have been easy targets for those. God uses evil, evil to, to punish. Satan right now is a pawn to God, and we've got to remember that right now Satan is a complete pawn. And Job is a great example of that. He has to ask permission to do, do any big deal. Now, he can whisper in people's ears and try to get them to do wrong, but to do anything major, especially against God's people, he has to get permission. And I've said as well, Satan will have to ask for permission to even kill somebody who is not one of God's children, because if he didn't, his whole goal would be to wipe out the world because that would be easy, easy pickings for him. If God gave him that much permission, he'd just wipe out the world population and it would be over with. So God is holding a chain on Satan all the way around. Satan is a puppet for God to use, thinking that he is something more than he is. I won't even begin to try to figure out why Satan, Satan tries. Most enemies, even though they know that they're outnumbered, somehow think that maybe they're going to be brilliant enough to make a great strike at the, at the, at the strong person and, and, win, and win the war. That's the only thing I can think that Satan is trying to do is that he, now we know that that's deceived, but you think about how small countries will do the same thing. Well, somebody trapped is going to fight, you know, an animal or somebody trapped fights very hard for their survival. So he could be just the trapped animal trying to instinctively fight his way out. He said in Isaiah that he would ascend to the, the height of the throne. He would sit next to God. 
you know, the seven eye wills of Satan, of Lucifer to be like God. And that's, so that is still that deception in him that somehow he can be like the creator. And that's the lie that he uses to unman to get them to sin. You can be like the God. That was his lie when he talked to, to Eve. God's lying to you because he knows that the day you eat that fruit, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Basically, you could be God. You can be like God. You can be equal to God. The same thing his problem was. And he's used the same thing for generations since. You know, do this and you can be like God. You can be able to have power. And so what is his ultimate goal? It could literally be, and I've said this, he couldn't know that he's absolutely defeated, but he's looking completely to hurt God as much as he can by taking as many of God's precious creation, man, away from him. And that could be his only goal right now. He may, he may know that he's not going to win, but he's looking to take as much humanity away from God as possible. <clears throat> and, and to me, that's a very valid thought. Okay, I know I've lost, but I'm going to hurt him as best I can by taking as many of his people away. Yeah, these people are precious to him, so I'm going to strip him of as many of them as I possibly can. And I think that's what he's trying to do. I don't think he's even under the de deception that he can win. I think he's just trying to hurt God. As, as much as he can. And that's my personal opinion. It's not really based on anything. I, I can't even, I can't point to a scripture that says that. It's just the only thing that makes sense to me because I can't see that he thinks he can win. I, but by stripping people away from God, then he would, could, un, could conceivably be just thinking he's hurting God. That's the only thing I can, I've ever been able to understand the, his actions with. But God uses evil. He doesn't condone it, but he uses the evil. And sometimes he uses evil to bring people to him. And this is something I've shared with parents who want their kids to become, you know, come, come to God. But they'll stop all the bad things from happening, enabling their bad behavior. And sometimes we have to hit rock bottom before we turn to God. And this is very important for us to understand. God, if we're going the wrong way, God will... God will try to bounce us off the floor a couple of times and say, hey, you know, are you ready to turn around? And if you listen to a lot of people's testimonies, you know, I was into alcohol and drugs and this, that, and the other thing, and one day I woke up in the middle of the gutter with nothing, nothing, and I realized I needed God. You know, and that's simplifying their story, but that's usually what ends up happening. You get pushed so far down that you kind of look up and say, how did I get here? And God is just saying, I, this is what I allowed happening to you. I had a decision, and I've talked about this in the past. It took me six years to learn, and I, every time I turned around, it was the wrong decision, and God kept pushing me further and further into problems and, and, and everything. And I finally just said, God, I give up. That was what it took. I was trying to run my life, do it my way, and God says, I'm not going to let any of your plans work. God does this oftentimes with us when we think we can take care of it ourselves. God is always looking at us to be humble and pliable in his hands. <coughs> Excuse me. But God wants us to be pliable in his hands. And when we are not and we want to do things our way, he'll set his face against us and say, okay, you keep doing it your way and it won't work. And this is what God is trying to do. He wants us to be looking at him as Lord. Saying that he's in control 
and living like he's in control can be two very different things. And this is very important for us to understand. God will not allow our flesh to stand up before him. If it's something that I'm doing in my own strength, trying to, even if it's good, okay, and I, I keep bringing this back, even if it's good, God's not going to let it stand before him because he's not going to let our flesh stand before him. He is the one who's going to rule. And this is why he, he is called Lord. Elohim, the Lord God, and Adonai, in Elohim in the Old Testament, and Kyrios in the, in the New Testament. He is Lord, ruler. I've said it oftentimes. We as Americans have a hard time with the concept of Lord because we, don't, we have this independent streak that says, nobody tells me what to do, nobody tells me how to do it, and if I don't like my government, I'm going to replace them. I wish we would sometimes, but we, <laughs> we started out kind of in the wrong principles, and now we need to be able to look and say, God is Lord, and we need to learn as Christians how to bow ourselves to God. And for us, it's a little harder because of that whole independent streak that we have, self-made man mentality of, of America. But we need to learn he is in charge. We do things his way. And when he says to do something, you know, there's these old jokes when, you know, tells you to jump. You don't, ask, you know, you ask him how high, you know, you don't ask him, you know, don't say I'm not going to jump or why. But that's supposed to be how we're basically supposed to be with God. God says do something. He says jump. We go, how high do you want me to jump, God? Not why should I jump? And but we need to get this mentality as a Christian that God is in charge, period. And we all fight it to some degree or less degree, and then we learn slowly sometimes how to let him be Lord and jump through his hoop. Verse 25 says, Destruction comes and they seek peace, and there shall be none. When God finally allows things to happen and move, it usually runs its course. When the flood started in the day of Noah, it didn't matter what anybody believed outside that boat, they died. And it ran its course, 110 days on that ark before they stepped out of it. When the sulfur and brimstone fell on Sodom and Gomorrah, it destroyed that entire valley, except for the one little city that Lot asked if he could stay in for, the one, for, the, for that night. But once things start, they run their course. Once the Babylon came in to destroy Israel, it ran its course and they were taken captive. Once God's patience is done, it will be fulfilled. Now, he's very long-suffering. It goes a long time before he, before he does it. But then when it's time to move, he moves. And we need to keep that in mind. You know, will he listen to honest repentance? Yes, sometimes he will. That still means there may be consequences. And I've said this many times. When we sin and we repent, we're forgiven. There will still be consequences most of the time. And this is something we have to be ready for. When we do something wrong, there will be consequences. For, for people who are sexually active, there's all kinds of consequences that can happen from that activity. Ranging from the simple thing of a pregnancy all the way to sexually transmitted diseases, meeting a jealous partner that may be 
willing to take your life from it. There's all kinds of, you know, from the very simplest, you know, just a, just a simple pregnancy issue to death, death issues. When we go out and we do things that are wrong, there's going to be consequences. Some very simple, some fairly severe. People who drink, you know, can drink themselves into sickness if they drink way too much, including liver disease and all the other diseases that can happen. People who do drugs can do the same thing. <coughs> but all sin has its consequence that you may or may not realize you're doing, going to face when you start it. And people who lie, most people think that lying is a very harmless sin. And in one sense it is, other than the fact that if you lie enough, your reputation gets to the place where nobody believes you anymore. And if you say the wrong lies, you might hurt somebody else by putting the blame on somebody else, trying to, trying to cover yourself. You put the blame on somebody else and they get in trouble. And now it no longer is a harmless lie because somebody else is paying for your, your lie. There's lying to yourself. There's, there's gossip, which can oftentimes be lying. But gossip doesn't have to be lies. You can gossip while telling the truth, but gossip can hurt people even if it's the truth. So we want to be very careful. And with lying and gossip, God has bigger problems with those because the hurt on those ones are in, at the soul level and not at the physical level. Because I've met many people who are still hurting from things that were said about them or to them as a child. And they might be 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, still hurting from a rumor that had been started about them or you know, things they've been saying, well, you're lazy, you'll never amount to anything, and they spend their entire life trying to, trying to live against that, but in the back of their mind, no matter how successful they are, they're hearing, you're a loser, you're, you're worthless, you'll never amount to anything, and then everybody thinks that they're successful. But we need to be careful. There's consequences, and God says there will be no peace once he puts, turns, turns things against us. And this is a serious thing, that peace. It's a great thing about being a Christian is he gives us peace that passes understanding. And in Greek, we've covered this, that peace literally is a person who is content with whatever lot they have because they know that, they're not, that their sin has been dealt with. And they're willing to take whatever God sends their way because ultimately they know heaven's the ultimate home. This is why the more we hold on to the Bible, the more we do things God's way, the better off we are. Because our country really does not, even, even in days when it was a quote-unquote Christian company and, uh, company, country and had good morals, it still had a lot of things that were ungodly and unscriptural. The very founding of our country in rebellion against their leader violated scripture. Even though they based all their reasons for doing it on a number of scriptures, turning and going against your, the authority is not God's way because God places the authority in place. Now, am I happy that they did it? I love the country I live in. I love the fact that we have a republic. But its foundations were not biblical like most people want to try to say they were. They did not have just, just cause and, and all of this like they wanted to. But they put a good government in its place, and you know, what, what came out of it turned out to be fairly, fairly good, at least originally. And we need to be able to understand there, there were consequences, there were s situations that happened because of it, but God is always to be lifted up.
He needs to be lifted up. We need to do things his way, even when it doesn't make sense. And this is what I love to say about tithing. Tithing makes absolutely no sense. You know, we can't make it on the 100%, so we give God 10% and 90% goes further than 100%. Well, mathematically and logically, the idea of tithing does not make sense. But, you know, I have experienced in my lifetime, by tithing, it always works out better than by trying not to tithe. And so most of my life, I have tithed plus. Because it, to me, God has always blessed and he's always been there to bless. But there are times that, that you, a no is the right answer. And God says no frequently. You know, he knows what's good and bad for us and he'll say no when it's not good for us. And so no is not a problem. Mischief shall come upon mischief and rumor shall come upon rumor. Then shall they seek a vision from the prophet, but the law shall perish from the priest and the counsel from the ancients. And basically he's saying... Bad is going to happen over on bad. All these bad things are going to happen. And they're going to come a point when things are getting so bad that people will say, okay, we need a prophet. We need a vision. We need a message. And this, when we look at this answer from God, he's basically saying they're not coming even for the right reason. All they want is, okay, prophet, tell us what God's, you know, what God's saying. Not because they want to turn to God. But how do we get out of this problem? And it goes back to this old thing of, I'm sorry because I got caught, not because I <laughs> am sorry. And that's what this verse is talking about. Things are getting so bad that they're going to go, okay, God, you know, give us, give us a word. But not because they want to seek God. Does that make sense? It just, they're not wanting to seek God. They're just saying, okay, you know, we're having so much bad things. Maybe God has some word for us. And this is what happened. We saw this after 9-11 in our country. The church has got full for a couple of, couple of weeks. People looking to God for an answer. But they really weren't wanting the answer from God. They were just hoping that there might be some kind of good word for them. Give us, give us a prophecy. Give us a vision. Tell us, tell us something good that we can hang our, hang our hat on. And they weren't wanting to hear, Repent. <laughs> repent and turn to God. They wanted to hear just some platitude. And this is something that we see even in our day. People want platitudes. They want you know, good sayings that they can hang their hat on. Not, not turn to God and give my life to God, but just tell me, God, tell me, what I, tell me some good words. You know, what are some good words of comfort? But don't, don't tell me to come to you. Don't tell me to be, make you my Lord. Don't tell me to repent. Just give me comforting words. How much you love me. And this is what the world would tell us, you know, and this, we hear this all the time, that God is love. And when they say that, they don't mean love the way we do as, as, uh, as Christians. They mean that he's this sugary sweet love that, uh, that is broadcast on the old pop stations. You know, you, know, you love somebody, you know, all the, all the old 40s and 50s, 60s songs about love. You know, all, all sugary sweet, you know, no no commitment or no stay, staying power with them. And it's the thing most people get married on, this idea of love, this ideal, idealistic version of love that somebody I'm going to get married and they're going to meet all my needs instead of God's version of love, which is, is a unconditional love where you pour your life out to somebody else just as he pours his life out to us. And when we pour our life out to somebody without looking at what we're going to get in return, that's where love really becomes vital. And that's the love that draws people to it, is that love that draws us to somebody and supports them without 
demands on them. And too much of our love is that human love. What are you doing for me? And even worse it becomes, not what are you doing for me, but what have you done for me lately? Okay, and we have that mentality all the time. It's, okay, you used to be really nice to me, but what have you done to me today, in the last hour? Huh? Because that's the human love, it's the world's love, it's not God's love. And until we understand God's love, we don't understand, we won't understand true love. And that's the love that is really built, that relationships are truly built on. Good friends have this kind of love if they're really good friends. You know, it's not, what, what are you going to give me? You know, you're my friend, what are you giving me? You know, there's this give and take in, in, in good friendships. And that's why the friendship, true friendship is so rare, is because, because it's human, human, human uh, run, and we're looking at what, what can you give me? What can you give me out of this relationship instead of, I want to help you, I want to I I love you and for who you are and go forward from there. And this is God's love, that unconditional, I'm just going to pour myself out to you. And this is very important in a, in a marriage, to pour your life into somebody, whether you get something out of it or not, is, becomes irrelevant because that's not what true, honest love is. And this is why we look to God. We love God because he first loved us, is what it tells us in 1 John. We don't even know what love really is until we look at God and say, here is God showing us his love. How did he show us his love? While we were enemies, bitter enemies. He sent his son to die for us so that he could forgive us and draw us into him. And then on, even beyond that, he gives us everything. Not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, but because he chooses to give. And he just pours out lavishly on us. Grace, mercy, heaven, peace, calmness, all these things he pours out on us because he loves us. Not because, we love, not because we love him, not because we deserve it, just because he wants to do it. But let's think about this even further. The world that doesn't know him still is given abundant mercy in their life. God doesn't instantly destroy them like, like they deserve. He doesn't instantly pour out all his wrath upon them like they deserve. He gives them enough grace to continue so that he tries to draw them to him. We don't really think about that as much as we probably should. God is very gracious even to the world as he shows them his love. Saying, I'm not giving you what you deserve. I'm giving you love. I'm giving you mercy. Come to me. Ask for, for, my, for my forgiveness and take my son. You know, we think about how much he shows love, not just to us as Christians, because we, we have it pretty easy. Okay, God, you really, you're loving us, you're giving us all. And, but, you know, in the back of the mind of most Christians is, well, of course I get it. I accepted your son. But that is not God's love. We get that as a reward for it, but the whole purpose of it is he had it there for us to begin with. And he says, I love you so much. I've done this for you. I've got a gift for you because I love you. Nothing that we do has earned anything that we get. Nothing. We don't deserve anything but wickedness and punishment from God, even as Christians. 
The only good that I can do is by letting God work out of me. And then he rewards me for letting him work out of me. It's a really wonderful plan that God has. He says, let me do the work and I'll give you the reward. Wonderful plan. You know, most businesses, I don't know of any business that runs on that, where the man owner says, let me do all the work and I'll give you the pay. God runs his business with us that way. Let me work through you. You just open yourself and let me work through you and I will give you the reward. That's a wonderful plan. Makes life easy when we really start understanding it. But it's all surrender to God. It's all by surrendering to God and then he gives all of this stuff. The world doesn't understand it because they're sitting there stuck. They have trouble upon trouble, trial upon trial, and never turn to God because that's not in their heart. I shouldn't say never, rarely turn to God. But every once in a while, they'll get that spot and they'll go, God, I need you. I need you. And he says, all right, thank you, here we go. And he dumps, and he dumps everything upon them that is good because they turn to him. And this last verse, 27 the king shall mourn, and the, princess, the prince shall be clothed in desolation. The hands of the people of the land shall be troubled. I will do unto them after their way. According to their deserts, I will judge them, and they shall know that I am God. God's whole purpose of passing judgment upon people is that last little statement, that the world will know that I am God. All of the tribulation period in Revelation his whole purpose is that the world will know that I am the Lord, is what he says. He's, the tribulation, all the trials we go through are, are to show that God is the Lord. And we have to be able to understand that whenever we think we're in charge, God will send tribulation and trials, so he'll say, I want you to pay attention that, that God is God. There's an old saying that you know, the pastors like to teach, that they learn one major thing in, in seminary. There's one God, and I'm not him. <laughs> and all of us need to really learn that. Because in the back of our mind, in most of our minds is somehow, I'm God of my own world, to one degree or another. Otherwise, we wouldn't go off and do things our way. We really need to get into our brain, there's only one God, and we're not him. <laughs> and the more we can get that into our mind and truly live it, the better off we're going to be. There is one God, and, and we're not him, and he's the one that's going to show us that he's God. Through trials, through tribulations, through, through pain, he's going to say, I'm God. When I, when I share that when we learn something and God says, I'm going to send a test your way, basically the test is, do you believe me? I am God. Do you believe me? Do you believe what I've said in my word? Do you believe what you've been taught? Do you truly believe it enough to stand for it? And whatever it is that God is teaching you, be ready for the test because he's going to send a test that says, do you really believe? Do you really believe? Whatever it is that God's teaching you. And that's going to be different for every single person. It's going to be, do you truly believe enough to say, I'm going to stand for God no matter what? And sometimes that's a hard thing to do. Believe me, been there, done that many times <laughs> where God says, do you truly believe I'm teaching you about love. Do you know how to really, are you really going to let me love you, love people through you? I've been teaching you about tithing. Are you going to really give when times get hard? I've been teaching you about peace. Will you really have peace when I send hardship your way? 
All things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. Something bad is going to happen and God's going to say, do you believe that everything is for good? Everything we learn, no matter what it is we're learning, God's going to send a test to say, do you truly believe what I'm teaching you? And that's whatever God's teaching you. And for every individual, that's going to be different. It could be something from your personal reading. It could be something you've heard from another pastor on the radio. It could be something that I have said. It could be something that somebody else has said to you that from a Christian and just shared with you, that hit you and said, I need to live this way. And then God's going to send some kind of trial saying, okay, you know it was my word. You know it was me. Do you believe? Are you going to stand ready? And this is something that is very hard to do. God has challenged me in my life right now to do something, and, and I'm waiting for the challenges because I know the challenges are going to come. And I'm going, okay, God, help me to be faithful in what you've asked me to do. And what, I, what he's asked me to do is something pretty interesting, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be challenging to do, and yet, he's saying, I've asked you to do it. And I'm already stealing myself up for the trials that are going to come my way because of it. And I, and I already know some of the things that can, can and will happen. Praying, just being ready, trying to be on the watch. One thing that we read in the scripture so much is, beware, guard, keep. They're all the same word. Watch. The moment we don't watch for things is when we're going to be knocked over. Well, missed opportunities, but even more. The watchman on the wall, his job was to see the danger coming and prepare the city for the danger that's coming. Most of the time when we get knocked down or knocked silly, it's because we weren't watching, we weren't prepared. We weren't keeping a guard on our heart, and all of a sudden, next thing we know, Satan's knocking on the door or... Even worse is inside the door because we weren't watching that area of our life. So at this point, I know that what he's challenged me to do is interesting and it's going to be hard. It, I know it's going to be hard even in, its, in and of itself, much less the hardships that will come my way because of it. But because of what he's asked me to do, I know there's going to be other things that come in. So I'm, I'm saying, God, help me be guarded. Help me be watchful of what's what's happening because I don't want to be taken unaware and end up failing the test because it's something that happens and we need to be ready when God teaches us to love somebody you know then we go and we're walking along blindly down the road and all of a sudden we get blindsided by somebody who's hard to love and it shouldn't blindside us because he's teaching us love we should be ready for that person who's not hard to love and yet we get knocked over by it because we're not watching. We need to keep a watch on our heart. We need to keep a watch on the spiritual side of things because it is easy. For God's teaching us about forgiveness, he's going to put us in a place where we have to forgive somebody. And if we're not watching our heart and watching our spirit, we go, right, we go blowing right through the person we're supposed to be forg showing forgiveness to, being angry with them and, and, and harming them, and we get down the road and going, oh, oh no, <laughs> I missed the opportunity. You know, I really messed up. I didn't show forgiveness to this person, or I didn't show love to this person, or I didn't, you know, whatever it is that God's showing you, you didn't do it because you're not keeping guard on 
your heart. You're not keeping guard on your spirit. And we do this. I do this. All of us do this. We need to be aware. We need to be meditating. We need to be conscious of the idea that things will happen. And the moment we take our mind and eyes off guarding, we'll be in trouble. And I've shared this many times. And in war, the time that the people get really hurt is when they forget that they're in battle and they relax for a moment and they take their helmet off, they take their body armor off, not outside of battle, you know, while they're still in the line of fire, and then they catch that bullet, vital spot, because they for just a few minutes forgot that they were in battle. We as Christians do this all the time. Forget that we are in battle in the spiritual realm, and we let down our guard, and we take some pretty hard hits from Satan and, and the world. I would, bet, but I would bet that there's a large amount of Christians that are just like that. They don't really think on that level. The majority of them don't realize that they're in a spiritual battle because it's not taught in a lot of churches that we are in battle. Guard your heart. Guard your thoughts. Get into God's word. Spend time with God. Be aware that he's going to send, send trials. It, you are right. The majority of the Christians do not think of themselves in the middle of a spiritual battle, and then they are always wondering why they're being beat up and knocked down and, and not growing because they're not guarding their heart. They're not guarding their spirit. And it's very important that we hide in Christ, number one, but we still keep a watch. When you were in a walled city, you still kept a watch. You didn't just hide in the city and think, okay, I'm totally protected. Nobody's coming over this wall. No, you still kept a watch, even though you were in the, the fortress. Now, God is a good, strong fortress. He'll protect us, but we need to be guarding ourselves because it's very easy for us to walk out that door thinking we're okay and got everything and putting ourselves in danger. God wants us to guard. Be aware. And it's all through the scriptures. Keep your heart. Guard your heart. Watch. Beware. You know, be watchful. All these words that all are about guarding. And we need to keep that in mind. And we're going to end here at the end of chapter 7. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have. Lord, teach us to guard our hearts. Help us to stay focused on that. Help us to know that you are the one that's going to keep us and that there will be tests and tribulations and trials to see do we truly believe what you have taught us. Help us to be ready for that. Help us to, uh, to know and witness to people. Lord, if there's anybody that doesn't know you, let them be able to confess their sins to you, to admit they're a sinner, they deserve a punishment and accept your gift of salvation and contact us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.